You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, October 9th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Nope. Okay. We've got a bunch of questions, so let's get going. Uh, first question. Hi, thanks for doing this. I was wondering if you could just give us a lay of the land on the pandemic right now as we head into the colder months and then kind of talk through what might be driving the increases we're seeing in the Midwest and then we're also seeing some increases in the Northeast, which um, as you know, we'd already had the, the large outbreaks there this spring. So is, is that an indicator of what's to come um, with the fall and winter? Um, yeah, I would say in, in general, um, the, the lay of the land at the moment is that uh, we are still running headfirst into the fall and winter. Um, we still have tens of thousands uh, of known cases, probably hundreds of thousands of actual cases happening uh, every day that could be detected. Um, and what that means is that we have a tremendous number of, of uh, small little outbreaks ready to, to sort of burst. Um, I recall months ago, this is probably still in, in May or something, I, I was talking about uh, this period of time back then and saying that if we end up in the fall again, when this is when there, there's a lot of media attention in the, in the late spring asking if things are gonna die out in the summer. And essentially what I said then is very similar to what I'm saying now, which is yes, things got lower in the summer probably because of reduced uh, transmissibility, uh, but still the force of infection allowed transmission to persist. Um, and now what we're, what we're seeing happening is that we're moving into the fall and the winter, which is generally the, the season that's most ripe for coronavirus. Um, and instead of having a handful of cases like what we saw uh, initially with the epidemic in, in February and March through imports, um, we have tens of thousands of cases, if not more, uh, all ready to, to blow up. And I, I like to think of this as a, a forest and we essentially have just been dropping, uh, there's a lot of leaves on the forest floor. And now instead of just a couple of sparks on the perimeter to sort of ignite the whole thing, we have a huge number of, of little sparks that are happening throughout the entirety of the forest. Um, and so the moment that things get dry enough in that analogy, or in this case, you know, into, into the winter, uh, we're likely to, to see massive explosions of cases and outbreaks that will, um, that could potentially, um, you know, make what we've seen so far look like it hasn't been that much. We don't really know when exactly this particular virus is most transmissible period of time will be. Uh, if it's November and December, then, then what we saw last year was really just a taste of things to come because we didn't get the cases uh, really imported until after that window of time. And so I think where we're going right now is we're, we're charging headfirst into the fall and winter and we can't stop that because that's time and time can't be stopped. Um, but what we haven't done is we haven't figured out how to actually um, get the surveillance and, and testing apparatuses up and running. We haven't actually come up with a plan yet. We have spectacularly continued to squander any, any effort and time that we've had. And, um, and we're pretty much moving into this fall and winter despite all of the 
despite uh, despite everything, you know, we're moving into it without much more, uh, without many more tools than we started with um, back in the spring. And I, I think that that's, um, you know, so probably we're going to end up in a in a place that we're really not happy with. Um, I anticipate that things will start to open up at the same time as as transmissibility is increasing. And that's kind of what we're seeing. And, and we're starting to see cases increase. At this point in time, slight increases in cases that we're starting to detect all over the place are likely a result of, of uh, things opening up and people spending a little bit more time indoors because things are opening up. And as the weather continues to get colder, uh, that will continue to increase even more. And then you get this perfect storm of people moving indoors and opening up the economy and opening up schools, uh, which this was always expected to happen, uh, at the same time as the as transmission is really becoming optimized. And, um, and I expect that we'll either have to make, we'll have to make some really hard decisions again. Will it be that we close down again uh, fully, or will it be that we choose uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of infections. And, and if that's the case, we still haven't really done a good job at figuring out how to actually keep vulnerable people safe. Um, we can do it to a certain extent when transmission isn't very high. And when cases, case counts are pretty low, we can, we can do a decent job at stopping spread. But uh, in general, that's kind of where we are. And I think that the moment we have very wide scale community spread, it's going to be incredibly difficult to stop spread from hitting you know, our elderly population, or even just all the people out in this country who are 60 years old and above, all of them are in pretty high risk levels. Do you have a follow-up? Um, I'm okay, thank you. Great. Uh, next question. Hey, Michael. Hi. Um, so there was a study published uh, earlier this week in clinical epidemiology, which looked at 36,000 people um, a couple of really remarkable things in this. First of all, only 115 were positive, but and that, that seems suspiciously low. This is from the April through June time frame. And then, but of that group, 86% um, reported no symptoms. So I think that's really interesting. I was wondering if you can comment. We see that again and again. I was wondering if that offers any hope in terms of um, we're closer to herd immunity than we think. And certainly anecdotally, I've noticed that people in my life who were under 55, a lot of them don't experience any symptoms at all, ever. So the, so the question is on herd immunity. Does that mean that maybe we're closer than we think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so can you just repeat those numbers that you said at the very beginning? Sure. Um, so they looked at 36,000 total, mm -hmm. and of those, 115 were positive with SARS-CoV-2, and of those, 99 reported no symptoms on the day of the test. Now, the pushback I would have there would be, okay, well, so maybe they had symptoms two days later, so is that really meaningful? But in any case, we see this time and again, a very high low non-symptom rate, mm -hmm. and I wonder if that speaks at all to um, whether we're closer to herd immunity than we think. Yeah, and that was viral testing, not serology. Is that correct? Uh, I think they did piece. Uh, yes, yes. The answer is yes. So, um, so that's still 0.3 percent. Uh, right. You know, that's and that's not a small number. That's actually for for 
antibodies, that's a small number. Uh, but for current PCR, that's actually a pretty high number. Um, okay. 0.3%. Uh, you know, if we if we had say an order of magnitude more than that, let's say we had 3% on any given day, we'd be at herd immunity in a, in a few weeks, you know, so, um, or not a few weeks, but a couple months. So, right. um, so that's actually, I would say, fit, fits the bill for what we know of this virus and where it's spreading. And, you know, if we were to go into, if there was a major outbreak happening uh, in a major city, for example, then we might expect that to be a very low number, but just for kind of average testing these days that, that makes sense um does it make, mean that we're closer i think that the i do believe pretty strongly that we are that there's a lot of cases that go completely unnoticed i've been saying this since january um yeah you have I know. and uh and i i think that probably we have had many more infections that are then that are showing up even with serology because we know that uh, also, as expected, uh, antibodies to this virus wane after a primary infection. Um, doesn't mean the immune memory is not there. It just means that the antibody signal disappeared, but the B cells could still be there. Um, so absolutely, I think it could mean, uh, it means a couple of things. I think that our actual case fatality rates are probably still a little bit high. I, I you know, and I, 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 I've been saying you know, we should never be talking about a case fatality rate for this virus, um, or and I should say infection fatality rate. It is such an extremely skewed fatality rate that talking about the average doesn't make any sense, um, because we, you know, we shouldn't be. It, it's just a, a whole different. There's just such differences between it that talking about a mean doesn't make any sense at all. Um, uh, so I think on the one hand, it means that we probably have, if we were going to talk about an average, it's probably lower than uh, overall than we have it, uh, estimated so far. It's probably pretty similar at the higher range of ages, but but maybe lower overall at, at the lower. Um, and then from a perspective of how many people have actually been affected and are we closer to herd immunity? I think in cities, maybe. Um, but I actually don't think that we really have anything remotely close to what is really needed to get to herd immunity. But I do, I think oftentimes we forget that herd immunity isn't a binary thing. Um, it's like immunity, like sensitivity, like anything in biology. Um, it's a harder thing to think about, but it's all on a gradient. And uh, the, the closer right. we get to herd immunity, the, the more we're, you could think of it as just deceleration. So we're, we're taking, taking some acceleration away. And so the closer we get to herd immunity, even if we're not there, we're slowing cases down, we're achieving some levels, which is why we continue to vaccinate for flu, for example, despite knowing that not everyone's getting vaccinated and the efficacy is poor, we know that every little bit counts. Um, and so I think we're a little bit closer than probably what the official estimates are, but I don't think we're that much closer. Okay, and if I could just ask one more, and sorry for all the numbers, but so we see the case rate rising, and then the question is, does that matter um, from a potential lockdown perspective? So one way to think about it is, okay, so decompose it by GDP. So what you find is that cases are rising in areas that produce 60, 60% of the nation's GDP. That's interesting because that's high, but it's not 90%. So do you have any thoughts on that way of thinking about things? And secondly, just real quick, Wisconsin is is reporting 80% hospital capacity use. That's 
scary high. That seems to be what tips politicians over into lockdown. And I know that you work in a hospital as well on the side. And so um, just just that question, like, are we going to hit that point where hospitals are full up and politicians freak out and close down the economy? So those are the other two points I wanted to ask you about. Sorry for taking so much time, but that's it. Thank you. Yeah, I do think that um, I think it should be concerning to everyone um, that that cases are increasing. It just should be uh, because I don't think they're going to slow down. We're we're going the opposite way from from trying to you know we're no longer in a position where we're trying to slow cases. We're we're in a position now where predictably people have uh, gotten some bit of apathy around this virus. They have they're tired, rightly so. People are COVID yeah, COVID fatigue. It's a real thing. It's right. it's a psychological thing. And so I think what that means is um, we are going to see cases continue to rise without slowing. This is the opposite situation than we were at in February and March when all when all options were on the table um, in terms of shutting down. And now we're going to see massive resistance around it. Um, and and so as long as cases are continuing to accelerate upwards, I don't I don't see that trend going down until, you know, either until we lock down and close down or until everyone starts really being diligent about wearing masks uh, and trying to social distance as much as possible. Uh, otherwise, I think we will continue to see hospitals slowly fill up. Uh, and uh, and that will become the point, you're right, when politicians say, okay, you know, this isn't good anymore. Um, but we shouldn't ever get to that point. We should have had this virus controlled already. Uh, in terms of the economic uh, issues, sure, Jim Stock is an economist at Harvard and I did some research on this. Um, and we, we put out a, a, a reopening, the, the paper was called Reopening Scenarios. It's in, um, uh, I have to remember where it's published. Uh, but in any case, um, what we were looking at there is really what are the, are there certain market sectors? Can we, are there efficient ways to reopen while um, keeping cases down while balancing economic, um, economic uh, features and sort of what sectors are maybe most or least appropriate to open up immediately? Um, and I do think that all epidemiologists should be thinking along that line, those lines too. And that's how the, and that's because that's how the, the government has to think. You know, we can't just take a biased view of only the pathogen. We have to be, um, we have to be considering um, the, the economic ramifications of our decisions from a, from a public health perspective re regarding the virus, because if we take those too much to an extreme, you know, I've been very worried in Jim's stock. Uh, the reason we did all that work uh, is because we're both very concerned that um, at this idea that maybe the economic toll could ultimately be worse than the viral toll would have been. Um, and so they have to be balanced appropriately. Great. Thanks, everyone, for your patience. Uh, and I will say real quickly that uh, the link to the reopening scenarios paper is in the Zoom chat, if you'd like to take a look at that. Um, and also, we've got a lot of folks on the call, so I'm kind of sorry, Ms. Uh, Dr. Amanda, if you could just maybe keep your answers a little bit shorter, that'd be great. Sure. <laughs> Uh, next question. Uh, hi, thank you, doctor. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, okay. So uh, I'm a reporter from the paper. I have been following the news about uh, COVID for a long time, COVAX and X. And I, I don't know if you noticed that today China has off 
officially joined the COVAX. And um, um, I, I want to ask if you have any comments on it. And as there are a lot of countries joined the COVAX and uh, the American haven't joined it. So I, I just want to ask uh, how influential about the, this authority and do you think uh, what problems lies uh, in the future and uh, anything, yeah. So what does it mean to the world that China joined this authority and American don't? Yeah, that's my question, thank you. I think it's reflective of the more, of the increasingly prominent position that China is starting to take in the global economy and, um, and in the leadership that China to a large extent is taking um, over, in this case, over the United States. Um, we have decided that isolationist, uh, isolationism is a, is a policy that we'd rather go with, at least this current administration has, um, you know, at least as far as being greedy about things like vaccines. Um, and I think that it's, it's disappointing as an American to see that we are unwilling to participate in the global, um, in the global community in a way that makes the most sense. Um, and it's heartening to see that China is willing to, to sign up and sign into that and, and agree to be a, a, an equal player and a participant in a more global economy. It's, um, uh, I, I think it's reflective of the future years to come. Um, China will overtake America. I mean, I'm not an economist, so I'm just saying words now, but I do believe that China will overtake America in, in terms of uh, its economic productivity, its leadership in advancing technology. Um, the U.S. has decided that science is not the direction we want to go anymore, and, and we want to regress. Um, I think our decision to not sign into the pact is and the Paris um, Climate uh, Agreement. I think that all of this is, is reflective of a regression on the part of the US. And I'm very glad to hear that China has decided to sign into um, COEX because it's the right thing to do. And um, I think that it should be a, a warning to the American government that we're falling behind, uh, not just in, in many ways, but also in the relationships that we've spent decades building with with the globe, um, we're we're really we're really isolating ourselves here. Okay, so uh, what's your comments uh, about the uh, authority, the COVX? Do you think it's really f influential, or uh, there will be a lot of problems uh, in the future? Oh well, I think it's I think it's necessary in in a way to ensure that that vaccines can be distributed. I think it's, um, I think it's an, a, an influential pact that countries are signing into. We'll see how it actually works out if, if countries agree to it, especially in the midst of what will likely become increasingly large uh, outbreaks in places in Europe and the US um, and globally, like if people will continue to participate in it and, and allow uh, and and really follow follow its guidance and not try to hoard vaccines. Um, it's going to be really an interesting question to see how it plays out, but I do think it's a very important um, agreement to be put in place. Okay, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. 
next question. Hi, Dr. Minow. Thanks for taking this time. Um, I just had a, a question about the NFL. We've seen um, now here in New England with, with the Patriots, at least two, actually, I think three uh, players who, who have been affected by this uh, with, with COVID-19 now. Um, and we're seeing across the league more teams being impacted. I was wondering if what do you think what the NFL's policy has been, you know, um, we've seen other leagues going to a bubble. The NFL has chosen not to. Um, do you think it, it will uh, be successful at um, trying to keep cases down uh, as we continue through the season? I think it's still doing a lot of testing. It's not bubbled in like the NBA, but it is doing a lot of testing. And ideally, I don't know, but I, I don't know what kind of um, behaviors the players are, are, are having with regard to masks and distancing. Uh, but they have a lot riding on, on remaining not infected. Um, and so my guess is that they are probably adhering at least in part to those policies. I think uh, it probably won't be as uh, good as the NBA's bubble, but probably they will do an okay job preventing uh, wide scale spread. But you never know. I mean, it just takes one person like we saw recently in the Rose Garden. It takes uh, one person to to just have an unlucky situation where they're a super spreader and they walk into practice into the locker room or whatever and, and infect a whole lot of other people, uh, especially if they don't have their masks on. And so um, I think it'll be hit or miss, but I think in general, the type of testing they're doing and, and, uh, and as long as they're also wearing masks, it would it will probably do a pretty good job. We might see a slow trickle of people getting infected and then recovering, um, but ideally without massive outbreaks throughout the league. Have a follow up? Uh, I do not, thank you very much. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, thank you so much for taking the time here. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, colleges and universities say to their students that if you're gonna travel home for Thanksgiving, then you should not come back to campus, you should stay there. And in a departure from that a couple days ago, uh, Northeastern University said they would welcome students back after Thanksgiving travel with, with the caveat of the testing that the university has been doing. Do you think that's a mistake uh, by the university from a public health standpoint? Um, I don't think it's necessarily a mistake. Um, I think again, it's balancing competing interests and society versus uh, versus the virus in some ways. And um, you know, the reason these schools and so many institutions have have employed very high throughput, high capacity, frequent testing, is to account for situations like this. And um, you know, do I think it will necessarily work? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but do I think that the testing so far has suggested that? It is possible to, to keep outbreaks at bay um, through frequent testing. I think we've seen that. Now, we have seen where it takes a little while. We've seen outbreaks happen at uh, Cornell and Illinois, um, but both of those are actually good examples, despite um, some recent uh, articles that, that kind of said the contrary about Illinois. Um, they're really getting their cases under control through frequent testing. Um, and I think in general, we've probably learned uh, a little bit more even since we did, you know, just from over the last couple of months about school testing and frequent testing. And I think Northeastern, as long as they're really engaging with very frequent testing and ensuring 
that people, when they do arrive back, should be increasingly diligent about wearing masks. You know, those policies, I think, should be put in place. If you go home, uh, maybe you're even more restricted when you come back about um, wearing masks and social distancing and, and ensuring that you get tests. Maybe it's, uh, you know, the place in Northeastern, maybe they could test every two days for uh, the first week and a half that somebody's back, for example. So I don't think it's a mistake. I think it will be, but it will, it, we have to wait and see how it actually shakes out. Um, and then just a quick follow-up. Um, if you were to offer advice to, to students or their families who are unsure if they should uh, travel and get together for Thanksgiving, do you, would you say that if, if they wear masks, if they travel in a relatively safe manner, that that's a reasonable thing to do? I think if people are if people are traveling, I would try hard to get um, you know really travel safely. Wear a mask. Wear an N95 if you can. You know even though N95s still remain, you know they're not they're not officially supported, and the CDC is not recommending it. But you know at the end of the day, biologically, if you get a if you if you get a good fit of an N95, it's going to go a long way. Um, especially if you're going to go and see vulnerable people, I think that there's a lot of risk and we might see it. Uh, I think we'll probably see um, an adverse effect of the holidays on cases. And we actually see that a lot with, um, you know, the, this famous time series from measles and other infections where we know that when people go, go home or then go and start school again, this, this is a time when outbreaks happen. Um, so I think that we have to be, people have to be understanding of the risk that they're taking. Uh, I just saw my family recently um, I wore an N95 uh, on the plane. I, I was in a special position where I was able to have rapid tests that are being tested, um, trialed. And so I brought them with me just to, to use rapid tests on a daily basis while I was with my family to ensure that I wasn't, um, that I didn't get infected on the plane or something and then bring it into my family's house. Um, and, uh, but I think that this is the this is something we have to figure out how to do properly, um, but we can't just um, we can't put the virus and it's one of the few areas where I agree with the president in a very small way, which is we can't completely disrupt all elements of society as a result of this. But where I completely disagree is I just wish we had this virus under control through good leadership first, and then we wouldn't have to be having this conversation. But um, you know, I think people are going to go home. They're going to have to see their family. This is just a part of being human. We can only go so far <laughs> with, with distancing. And um, I just hope that everyone is very safe. And I think it, it can be done generally safely, but I think it will probably lead to outbreaks. And that's unfortunate. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi. Um, can I just ask you, you know, people obviously have been looking at the death rate going in general, we're seeing fewer deaths recently. Uh, what is going to happen once we get to the fall and winter? I mean, you talked about how tough it's going to be in terms of an increase in infections. Do you think we're going to see the, the number of deaths go up kind of like we saw earlier in the year? Yeah, I mean, in part, the death, the, fa the falling death rate is a feature of a couple of different things. One is we've actually learned how to keep people alive better um, through things like remdesivir, through very simple procedural changes of ventilated patients and how we position them, for example. So we've actually figured out various ways to treat this um, virus that is improving our ability to keep people alive. So that's important. Um, and I don't think that's going to change. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully just keep getting better. 
I, you know, what I really want to see, and I've, I, I, I've been saying for a long time that I, that monoclonal antibodies are, uh, I think we should be putting perhaps even more, you know, early money into monoclonals than vaccines, just because, uh, I mean, we have to do both, but I think that if we can figure out how to get uh, a therapeutic that can actually keep people alive, um, then that's a, a huge advantage um, and changes our risk benefit uh, equations quite a bit. Um, but then what we don't know are, are a couple of different biological features. Is this so we do, I, I think that as we move into the winter, we're going to see more vulnerable people um, be put in more risky situations because they're going to be moving indoors. If a vulnerable person, you know, we're, we're going to see that instead of elderly groups and senior living centers having meetings outside, they're going to have them inside. Um, people's families are going to come inside to see their, their family members. And, um, and so I think we will again see an increasing number of vulnerable people be put in a position where they can get infected. Um, and that's a feature of just the weather and temperature and things like that. Um, couple that with potentially increased transmission as a result of weather, and that sort of starts to have synergistic effects to increase the risk to people. Um, so what we've seen so far in the summer, as things moved into the summer, we've seen a younger crowd of people get infected, some bit because they didn't care, uh, and, and also because they were willing, you know, while, while older people and adults and, and elderly people were really doing their due diligence to stay away from others because they were concerned. We had a lot of younger people uh, just getting infected uh, through parties and, and just being a little bit uh, just more social and a little bit more reckless. And so that drove the mortality rates on an average, you know, if we're just looking at overall rates of death per case down. But we're going to see the probably the age distribution shift up again with the winter uh, as transmission increases. And uh, and furthermore, one thing we don't fully understand is are there is there actually a biological um, relationship between severity of disease and the weather? And I'm we don't know this, and and I, I there is some research going on about it. But can is it actually that as you start breathing in drier? air, for example, cold, dry air, whether it's through the heat in our house uh, or just being outside in the winter, um, does that actually cause our tissues to, on our defenses to lower a bit? Um, and a number of other reasons why people might get sick in the, in the winter, uh, given the same viral load, for example. So we're not sure about that, but all of that could potentially factor in and we could end up with, a, uh, I think we should anticipate to see the mortality rate kind of increase up again in terms of deaths per case. Did you have a follow-up? Just very quickly, um, when you talked about the kind of biological considerations and the weather, I mean, you mentioned severity of disease. Is that, are you also talking about just the spread of the disease in general, or are you just saying that we don't know if people just get a lot, will get a lot sicker in the winter because of these factors having to do with the weather. Yeah, that, that's what I'm, and I don't think a, a lot of people aren't say, saying or suggesting that, and I'm just surmising here that that could be something, and it's something we should be researching, which is do, like, what are the, bio, are there biological factors that go into people actually getting more sick in the winter, given the same infectious dose in the summer versus the winter? And, and is it that our epithelium actually gets drier and, and more apt to get uh, for viral growth and things like that. You know, we're, we're just not sure um, about some of these things and they haven't been very well studied. Um, is there, are there features of our immune system that are truly seasonal? Um, we don't know that either. And the, those, I, 
it could be the case. I, I don't, it's hard to think of some of the reasons why that would necessarily happen, but, um, but those are the, those are the pieces that I think um, we don't know a lot about, but it, I wouldn't ever discount them as possibilities towards uh, why people, that, I wouldn't ever discount the idea that uh, people could get more severe illness given the same infectious dose in the winter versus the summer. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, next question. Hello. Uh, we have seen a lot of colleges that have been allowing limited attendance at football games, and I'm wondering how important is mask wearing at these games, even if it's outdoors and it's distance with small groups of four? Uh, I, I mean, there's no reason not to wear a mask at a game. I think even if it's outdoors, people are still uh, near each other. And, and I mean, if it's truly, so if you're, if you're with the same people who, you're, who you live with, like in a, in a suite or something, and it's the four of you and you're normally around each other with no masks and there's nobody else around you, um, no, maybe, but it's just not worth it. It's, um, I think mask wearing should be just, it should just be a thing anytime you're in a congregate setting like a game. Uh, even if it's, uh, even if you are not around other people, um, right in your very, very, very direct vicinity, you know, it's just not wearing a mask and that just starts to have sort of an, erode, an eroding effect on sort of what people are willing to do other times too. So I think if a school, for example, says, hey, you don't have to wear your mask, this is outdoors on the stadium where we have people five seats apart, that starts to send the wrong message at a school, for example, that, hey, you know, you, if you're, it, it's kind of a, a slippery slope. And so I think in this case, the message should just be very clear, just wear a mask just wear a mask, it's not, it's not that hard. Um, there's a lot of masks that you know, aren't that disruptive um, to our speaking and our breathing and things like that. And you know, would I recommend that everyone wear a, nine, a 95 to a game? Absolutely not. Um, but I, I do think that we should just be pushing that as much as possible in the midst of, it's one of the easiest, cheapest things we can do to just all do our part to stop this outbreak. Good, thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on the White House outbreak and the Rose Garden event and whether it suggests that there might be um, a failing or a hole in the strategy of uh, using the daily screening with less sensitive tests. Um, I don't think that's a hole. I think using daily screening um, with these tests is, is, is incredibly important. I think the, the gap was the failure to wear masks. Um, uh, the, every, every one of these is one additional layer of protection. And, um, and the daily screening, you know, you can't, we, we should be doing, I think we have to be doing daily screening with, um, with the tests that are available for daily screening. You know, if you have a 24 or 48 hour delay to get a result back, um, then that can't reasonably be used um, at the site of entry before somebody walks into something like the Rose Garden. So I, I would say on the contrary, the daily screening uh, with these tests is actually probably the only thing that's kept the president safe from COVID from March through October. He has been reckless in just about every other way when it comes to public health measures. And I mean, he hasn't just been reckless about himself, he's been reckless about his neighbors and, uh, and, and his 
speech and actions have been reckless to cause you know outbreaks to continue to persist across the country and um, frankly kill thousands or tens of thousands of additional people that probably wouldn't have died if if people just wore masks um, and uh, who who aren't wearing them because of his rhetoric and so I would say that um, the testing actually on the contrary is probably it's exactly what needs to be done along with masks and distancing. Um, I think that a lot of people, you know, with public health, it's really easy for public health to go unnoticed when it's working. And this is the problem with public health in general. It's why it gets underfunded and defunded. It's because nobody cared. I mean, people did care a little bit about what the president was doing on a daily basis with testing, but nobody really cared that, that every day that there were not infections happening in the White House. And then all of a sudden, when there is an infection and an outbreak, everyone cares and blames it on the, the one thing that they were doing, actually. Um, but no, they should be, it should all be on the fact that they're not wearing uh, masks and not social distancing appropriately. And on the contrary, the testing that they're doing has been actually quite good. Um, you know, assuming that they're actually doing it daily. I have no idea how much they're actually doing it. Um, like if they're truly just doing it for the Rose Garden, if they didn't actually test everyone, that was a mistake. Um, you know, and do I think that, uh, do I think that the, the testing that they're doing in the White House, like should, I, I personally think that they should have actually just built a lab and gotten um, a better test in the White House than, than, the, than the Abbott tests. But I think from a, from a, a larger, more general perspective, the Abbott test um, is actually a very good test. A lot of people have um, uh, have dis have believed um, that the Abbott ID Now test, which has been in use since March, is low sensitivity. People have said that a lot. That all came from. Uh, I'll I'll probably spend three minutes talking about this for anyone who's keeping track. Um, but this Abbott ID Now test, um, there was an NYU paper back in um, I don't know maybe it was May or, or something that suggested that, um, that the ID now test is not sensitive. And that led the FDA to put out a letter of, of warning saying, hey, you should be careful with this test. And it led the media to largely um, deride the use of this ID now test in the White House. Um, and a lot of people continue to say it wasn't a great test, not a good test for this use. Well, it's, on the one hand, it's one of the, it's one of the best tests, or it's the only, it and Cepheid are the two rapid tests that we have that are actually molecular tests um, that the White House has been using. It's changed a little bit. But what's really important to understand here is that the, um, that the test that uh, the, the, the NYU paper that showed that this ID now test was only 60% sensitive, which maybe some of you have heard about, it's just, it was a, a totally biased, skewed paper. And if for anyone who understands CT values, if you just take those samples, the same paper, and you cut off the samples that had CT values above 40, which by almost any metric should be negative, but they kept them as positive on the gold standard in that study, the sensitivity in that exact same paper jumped from 65% to 93% sensitivity. And so essentially that was a, that was a, a failure of a paper, in my opinion. It, it really created so much confusion about the ID now. And sure, it's not, is the ID now as good as the best PCR test? No, but it's a, it's a test that you can literally have on a table out in a park bench, you know, and, and use it anywhere. So there, there are some concessions, but it is one of the best rapid tests that's available. 
And it actually has a sensitivity to detect people who, who with virus that, that's up in the 90s, not 60%. That was just a, it was a terribly poor um, paper. And I've, I actually wrote a letter to the editor when it first came out and I said, hey, this is not, uh, you know, this, these are the issues with this paper and the data that was used in the paper were entirely skewed towards ex exceedingly low viral loads. So to say that it missed them, that's like saying, you know, it's, it really is not taking a nuanced view. Um, unfortunately, that letter to the editor was desk rejected without review by the, by the chief editor, Alex McAdams, which I have no idea why, given the importance of this paper. Um, and I'll share, I, I'll share the letter to the editor with you all, actually, if anyone's interested. Um, and I'll find it in, while we're talking. But, um, you know, I'm just very distraught that, uh, you know, is it the very best test in the world? No. But it is a, uh, it's a very good, good assay. And I actually think that it's one of the things that's kept uh, the president, you know, safe all this time. There's a, I'm just putting in the chat if anyone wants to read that letter to the editor that was not accepted. <laughs> Thank you very much for posting that. And if anybody would uh, like that at some point in the future, just let me know. Um, let's see. Are you all set? Um, that was super helpful. Thank you. Um, just one quick question just about the um, FDA's ruling for what these tests are qualified for. Um, my understanding is that they're not supposed to be used for asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic screening, um, but clearly that's kind of what they are being used for in the White House and potentially how you suggested as well. Um, do you think that they are sensitive enough to be used in that manner? And can you kind of comment on why they're not currently approved for that use? Yeah, so this has been a major source of confusion amongst everyone. Um, the FDA only approves things with the language that people bring to them. So it's really easy for Abbott, uh, for example, to get approval for symptomatic use because it's easy to find symptomatic people with virus. It's really hard to find some asymptomatic people with virus. You have to test thousands of people. Um, so all that means is that what, what Abbott brought to the FDA was hey, this, this test works with these metrics in, in symptomatic people. But what's, what I think people are really missing the point of is that these tests don't care if somebody's symptomatic or asymptomatic. They just care if people have the virus in them. And so when we're talking about uh, frequent use of a test, uh, we, whether, whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic, if the virus is there and is transmissible, um, then the, the test should still work. Um, it's just what the, the, the FDA approval process is completely different from the biological utility of a test. And I think people have not fully understood this. The FDA is not trying, their, their authorization process isn't trying to make any claims one way. Like the FDA isn't the one doing the studies. They're, they're only approving based on if Abbott says this is the sensitivity in symptomatic people within seven days of symptom onset then that's what ends up in the, in the EUA authorization. The FDA's language isn't, it, Abbott is the one writing, um, uh, or the, the, the companies, whatever company it is, just Abbott, I'm just thinking of a Binex now, right now. And um, you know, they're the ones writing the language and the FDA authorizes it or doesn't. And so in this case, um, again, the, the test doesn't care if somebody's symptomatic. They, it only cares if the virus is there. So biologically, uh, if your concern is to find people who are transmitting virus, uh, then these tests should all work. 
Um, if your concern is being able to know if somebody is sick at all with the virus, then sometimes the virus can be in your lungs, it can be in your gut, and, and then that's when you really have to um, be a little bit more concerned about what is the role of the test in determining if somebody's sick from this virus. But if you're concerned about does somebody have virus in their upper respiratory tract that's going to transmit, that's really regardless of symptoms or, 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 or not having symptoms. And, um, and then the other piece is it could even be that um, asymptomatic people might even need a higher viral load to be able to transmit because they're not coughing. You know, they're not going to be expelling the virus at high velocity. And, um, and so, but they might be around more people. Um, so I, I think in general, we have to really stop, you know, I've just read so much about, about asymptomatic versus symptomatic use of a test to determine if people are transmissible. And that's just, um, I know there's a lot of people who want to make, you know, make whatever statement they can that the president's doing the wrong thing. Um, in this case, I would say that um, there was a reason why Brett Girard and, uh, and HHS came out and said, look, these tests are only approved for, are only FDA authorized for symptomatic people. However, we are approving them for use in congregate settings. It's actually one of the few um, decisions I agree with. They kind of went around the FDA and it's because it's just hard for these companies to get that true asymptomatic claim, but it doesn't mean that the test doesn't work on an asymptomatic person. It's just harder to build up that database. So, um, so I, I think that it's important to understand where, why the FDA uses the language it does. And it doesn't have anything to do with the test biology. It just has to do with the, with the participants that were enrolled for the authorization um, uh, sample sets. Um, and, and, uh, but furthermore, I think a lot of the research that, that my lab has put out and this whole idea of frequent testing and rapid testing suggests that we don't have to be so concerned about the sensitivity of the test. If we're doing frequent testing, it's much better to do frequent testing with a lower sensitivity test than infrequent testing with a high sensitivity test. Um, as long as people are continuing to wear masks and social distance and things like that, um, frequency is what matters much, much more than sensitivity. And this is a whole different way to look at testing than what uh, a clinical microbiologist in a hospital might look at where they're focused on, you know, they have essentially one shot at goal. They have one test in front of them at a given time. They don't, they don't know who it's from, if it's getting tested frequently or infrequently. So they wanna make sure that in their hands, it is the most sensitive test. And that's what we do in the hospital. But for public health programs and screening programs, if, if you have to forego a hundred times or a thousand times lower or worse molecular sensitivity, but you can increase the frequency of testing 10 times or 100 times, then that is absolutely the way to go because the goal isn't to detect molecules, it's to detect infectious people. And the only way to do that is with high frequency testing. Are you all set? That was great, thank you so much. Uh, next question. Uh. Mike, um, there have been a lot of different approaches um, that people have taken to fans at sporting events. Um, Florida's governor recently said full stadium. Um, here in New York, we're still at no fans. Um, what would your recommended course of action be as a public health expert? And I don't know if this matters, but we do seem to have relatively low test positivity here um, with a little less than 1% locally. Um. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole issue of test positivity is really hard to discern because it is 
just a reflection of who's getting tested and why. Um, like I said, even a 0.3% um, positivity on a true cross-section of a, of, a, of a population is still actually pretty high. So if, you're, if it's like 1% of a true random population, that's actually very high. If it's 1% of a biased population who are symptomatic, that's low. Um, I think to answer the question about sports, um, I mean, what we need to do to get sports back, uh, to get spectators back in the stands is we need to stop these outbreaks. We need to have a national plan to get control of this virus. Um, and until we do that, we can't realistically open up stadiums on a regular basis without serious concern of them each becoming super spreading events. And is it worth it to open up uh, an NFL stadium uh, if, if, the, if there's a massive super spreading event and three people die as a result of a game? You know, I don't really think that's worth it. Um, and, but I think that it shouldn't, it's not out of our reach. And this is why I'm so frustrated at the federal response is, you know, people like the president continue to say, we have to open up the economy. We have to open it. Like, don't be afraid of this virus, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, this is still a virus that kills people. We can open up the economy if we just control the virus. But one thing has to come before the other. And, and we have the tools and the wherewithal and the ability if we actually worked as one. Like I, I tweeted it out the other day and I just think about it so frequently. Imagine if the president got up in front of the country and said, my fellow Americans, you know, today we're turning over a new leaf. We are going to take control of this virus. All we have to do is everyone wear a mask and everyone social distance as much as possible within reason, but wear a mask and be responsible. Those few words coming from this president, combined with all of the people who are doing that already, could really make all the difference in the world to our ability to control this virus. And then we could safely open the economy and open up sports games. But until we do that, we can't safely open up stadiums, even with frequent testing, because like we saw in the Rose Garden, there's always a chance that somebody can still get in. So can we, can we safely do it if we have everyone tested before they enter and wear a mask and space things? Maybe. But it's the more important piece is to focus on getting control of the virus at the population level first. And, and then we can start opening these things. And until we do that, you know, the president can say we should open up the economy all he wants, but he's not exactly making it easier to do that. Um, and just as a quick follow-up, obviously, if you're going to a sporting event, you are generally yelling, shouting, um, hopefully while wearing a mask. Um, how does that like what type of distance would that type of scenario suggest people should stay away? Because you're maybe mitigating it with the mask, but you're also shouting and yelling. Yeah, like I like I said, I don't. It's not going to be until community spread is so low that it's very unlikely that anyone's infected when they go in. No, it's just going to be it's going to be dangerous. And I do think things like shouting, even with a mask, um, can absolutely. Uh, cause this to spread. You know, one of the reasons why we say an N95 versus a different kind of mask is because of aerosolization. It's actually held tight. It stops even aerosolized virus for the most part from getting through. But most of the masks that people wear won't do that. And, um, and so we still run the risk of aerosolized virus getting out and infecting people's neighbors.
Thank you. Uh, next question. Thanks for taking my call question. Um, so I just want to follow up on what you just said. So um, if the president doesn't get up and um, ask people to wear a mask and turn over a new leaf, um, what is plan B specifically to get control of the virus? Um, like, can you do it without that kind of um, national, you know, Winston Churchill, uh, British kind of, you know, let's everybody work together. Um, you know, what, are some, what are the specific like plan um, that would involve more testing, contact tracing, you know? Uh, I don't think we have a plan B at the moment. You know, the sure. government's plan B is, um, uh, the government's plan B is a vaccine. And um, I think the plan B, sh we shouldn't have to be asking the question, what's plan B compared to a mask? But um, I think that uh, what I've been advocating for a lot, and that this is because I think until we have a vaccine, we don't have any, we don't really have any other options. We have three things more or less at our disposal. Uh, well, four, we have social distancing, we have masks, we have economic shutdown, which is just a, an extreme form of social distancing. Uh, and then we have frequent rapid testing. And I do think that, you know, all of our models, everything suggests that if we were to get enough of these little frequent, these little tests, which, you know, underneath them is just a paper strip. Um, if we can get these out into the public at, at large enough numbers, I think that that can be a, a huge benefit. If we can have people use them when they get to school, you have every kid, you know, they get into homeroom every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they use a test. That alone can really serve to stop transmission, sever transmission chains, drop the effect of our below one and get outbreaks to be, to dissipate. We essentially take the momentum, take the fuel out of the outbreak. And, uh, and that can be extremely powerful. So I think that these frequent rapid tests can be the plan B, but first and foremost, we should be wearing a mask, we should be social distancing, and then we should be um, trying to build these tests. And you know, for anyone who hasn't seen them, this is, this is what these tests look like. They're usually this plastic kind of thing, but when you open the plastic, that's just a holder. The reason I call them paper strip tests is, I don't know if you can see, there's just a little piece of paper in there that comes out. And, uh, and these can be made in the millions, really, you know, these can be made in the hu in huge, huge numbers. And I've been pushing for the federal government to produce them in those huge numbers, to not just wait until the next company comes out to build them, but to really take the challenge on themselves and produce these in very large numbers. Unlike a vaccine, it's easy to build these things. It's easy to figure out exactly what their metrics are to try to have you know, and then it's not, it's not just rolling these out though, like what we're seeing in Nevada where people are losing confidence quickly in them. That this is a huge mistake. The government just started pushing out antigen tests without giving people a realistic understanding of how these should best be used. And it's not just that they should only be used in symptomatic people, they can be used as frequent rapid tests to keep communities safe, even amongst asymptomatics, but we have to uh, know that there are gonna be false positives. And so what I think is we should have for every 30 of these, there's another similar form factor one that comes in the same box that's a confirmatory test. So if this turns positive, you confirm it with this one that's orthogonal and shouldn't turn positive for the same false reason. So that can be, if we had a plan for all of this, 
you know, we could make a whole national plan for how to scale up and produce these. And, you know, maybe it will cost $20 billion. Um, but that is nothing. That's peanuts compared to the amount of money that we're spending on our stimulus packages and that we've lost because of this virus. So it, nobody should be batting an eye about putting 20 or $50 billion into a program that could potentially get most Americans uh, uh, a rapid test to use three times a week or twice a week. And that alone could be enough to stop outbreaks in their tracks or at least stop them within uh, a number of weeks. Do you have a follow-up? I'm great, thank you, thanks so much. Uh, next question. Um, yeah, hi, thank you. Um, the governor of Kansas announced that we're getting about 60,000 Binex Now tests and eventually around 900,000. And um, I guess what, you know, what would you advise a, a state government to do in terms of figuring out how to use those? Because, you know, we've got kids and we've got teachers, we've got 60,000 people in nursing homes, assisted living. Where do we start? Yeah, um, well, uh, I mean, how many tests did you say? 60,000 is what they said we're, we're getting now, and they said eventually we were supposed to get like nearly 900,000 from the federal government. Yeah, I mean, I think the power in these isn't to use them once. Um, it's just not how they, you know, they are lower sensitivity. And the only reason why we, I mean, they're better than nothing, but the, where they really become very, very powerful is when you have the same person using them multiple days, you know, when they're, when they're enrolled in a program and for three months, they're gonna use them twice a week, whatever it might be. Um, that is when the sensitivity hit that these things take is not as important. Um, but if you're just using these as a one-off, you're just gonna dilute them all. They're, they're just gonna, it's gonna be, we're not gonna use them for how they really could be used. And, um, and, so for a state, I think not just having a state, not just informing a state how to use them, but we need to have true national guidance. And I've talked to a lot of governors about this, I've talked to a lot of senators about it. And, you know, so I can have these conversations here and there, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It's, we really need the CDC and the FDA to make very clear how these tests can be most beneficially used. And, um, and I think that the way that they can be most beneficially used is to not have equitable distribution of them, which sounds bad, um, but we should be, we should really be pushing all of these rapid tests to places that are, where cases are, are, are the most prevalent. And we should be enrolling people in those areas uh, and saying, would, if, if we give you 30 of these, will you use two a week for the next uh, couple of months? And that would be, or you know, even longer than that. That would be enough to, you know, you'd be distributing them to a smaller number of people, but if you can get enough people in a community to use them on a frequent basis, then all of a sudden you really see the power of them to prevent transmission from continuing. But you have to get them out so that, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50% of a community is actually able to do that. Um, otherwise, if we just say, oh, you know, we're gonna just distribute this one time to one person yeah, it might make a difference, but 60,000 is not a lot. Um, it's just, it's barely going to make a difference. So I think um, it's great that they're starting to be distributed, but my concern is actually it's going to do more harm than good because they're being distributed without guidance. Um, 
what we saw in Nevada is already the public is losing faith in these. Even epidemiologists are losing faith in them. They're saying, oh, you know, we got a bunch of false positives. We're going to stop all of this um, antigen testing now. But what I haven't seen is the CDC or the FDA taking a strong stance on this and saying false positives are expected and this has how we deal with them. We deal with that by having a confirmatory test right there, not a confirmatory test that somebody has to send out a PCR and get a result back five days later, but you send two rapid antigen tests together. And if we don't have enough to do that yet, you know, then we don't send them out because it will sow confusion and it will stop the program before it even has a chance to get started. Because the moment people lose confidence in them and start to wonder, you know, do we, like the moment people start to say, we don't have to trust a positive because a positive isn't actually meaningful, then we've, we've essentially drowned the program before it ever had a chance to swim. Um, and, and sorry, just a quick follow-up, but if we use these in schools or, or wherever we use them, do we have to worry about supply shortages like where, okay, we have the Binox now, but um, you still need a swab for it, right? And you know, what PPE do you need if you're a school nurse or something? Yeah, well, people can do these themselves and they come with a swab. And, um, and so we would still have, so all of that should be packaged together. And one of the nice things is you don't, of uh, self-swabbing is you don't necessarily need all the PPE to be there. So I think you might want somebody wearing, you definitely want somebody like wearing gloves and such, but, um, but you don't necessarily need the whole gown and all that stuff just to go and collect the, the cards from people. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, next question. Thanks so much. I'm sorry I'm joining late. Um, I am specifically looking at Florida distributing these tests to schools in order to avoid quarantining people who've come into contact with somebody. So the DeSantis has said if a student um, or presumably a staff member either comes to school with symptoms or develops symptoms at school, they would give them this test and then if they get a negative, they won't contract trace or quarantine anybody. What do you think about using it in that context? Um, I think, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, again, I think that the way that these should really be used in schools is, it's not, it's not clear like how, how frequently they'll actually be available in those schools. You know, is it just going to be, is, is it just going to be instead of PCR? Is that really what the idea is then? You know, I, I'm not actually sure about that. I mean, I, I don't know that they're using PCR tests in schools at all. Um, but presumably, he, he didn't say anything about, well, if they get a negative test on this, then we'll send them to get a confirmatory <laughs> PCR test. Yeah, I mean, the benefit of these is that they can be distributed more widely and be available where PCR isn't. Um, so a lot of people have said, if you get a negative on one that because they're less sensitive, you should get a PCR, but that's unrealistic. Otherwise, we'd just be doing PCRs. Um, so I think that, I, I, again, I think that the best way to use these in schools, if somebody's symptomatic and it's what you have, the good thing about these is that if you're positive and you, if you're symptomatic and somebody's around and, and or you have a high reason to believe that they are infected and it turns out that they're positive, then it's an immediate, it's immediate um, signal to say, okay, go home. You know, and, and if we need to get you a PCR to confirm it, 
great, but that's one person less that's at risk of infecting others. Um, but if you're just using it sort of haphazardly, one-offs here and there, um, I don't really anticipate that they'll be that powerful, and I think we'll just kind of run out of all of them you know, in a week. We, could, we have the potential to just blow through all of our supply of these with, unless we have a really clear targeted plan. Um, we'll just use them all very, very quickly. So I think in a school system, the best way to use it again is, I mean, you can use it if you don't have any other testing modality and you're concerned about the sick people, sure, but that's not going to stop the outbreaks because especially in kids, these, uh, these infections are, are asymptomatic almost, you know, almost all the time for, for little kids. And um, so I don't anticipate that just testing the symptomatic people will really have much of an effect. And it's why we have to be testing a lot of people frequently. So in a school, if we could have, you know, most people testing once or twice a week, that would be ideal to stop outbreaks there. Um, we could be doing pool testing. I've been trying to suggest to lots of schools and, and policymakers and government bodies for months and months now that we should be doing massive pool testing. You know, screw what the FDA said about four, that's just wrong. You can pool hundreds of samples together for surveillance, depending on what your goals are. And, um, and we could have whole classrooms or whole grades in schools that are, um, that are uh, getting a, a test, um, that, that are pooling them all into a single tube for a test. And so we should be, we should be really increasing our testing capacity for all different reasons. Um, but I do think just, doing, just using these as your way to kind of try to stop outbreaks in school probably isn't smart. Unless you, unless you have frequent use of them by most people. Do you have a follow-up? Um, no, I think that, that answers my question and I look forward to listening to the rest of this. Um, I think last question. Hey, thanks. Um, I'll try to make this quick since I know we're way over time. Um, my question is about the latest numbers in Massachusetts. Uh, I know that well, as we all, as you and I both know, Governor Baker has been trying to target interventions on a town-by-town -town basis in this state. Um, but we saw a number of communities go into the high-risk category this week. Um, it would jump from 23 to 40 from last week. And some of the cities that already, um, were already categorized high-risk increased quite a bit with their sort of average daily case rate per 100,000 people. Um, Middleton, for example, went from 12.5 to 58.1 in the last week. Um, does this mean our targeted interventions are just not working? Is there something wrong with them? Or are we missing something here? Um, I don't really know what the targeted interventions are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're doing some testing, especially on the schools, but, um, but in general, no place is really doing the type of targeted interventions. I think contact tracing, you know, nobody ever said contact tracing was gonna work for this virus. And I'm, I think we, you know, my estimate is that we're probably capturing 5% or less than the actual number of people who are infectious at the time they're infectious. So um, I'm not entirely convinced that, um, that our targeted interventions, whatever those might be, are really in a position to work well. Um, now, what we have done really well is we have a whole state and we have leadership who, has, who have encouraged masks, who have encouraged testing, who have tried to make it available. There's a lot of communities in our, in our state that still do not have wide-scale testing available. 
Um, and again, infrequent testing is not a way to deal with this virus. We can't bank on that as being our approach to capturing infectious people. Most times with, with, low, with low frequency testing, most people who are caught as positive, uh, are, we're, get, we're capturing them as positive after they've already been infectious, uh, or at least on the tail end. By the time they make an appointment, get, figure out that they're sick, make an appointment, they've probably already spent five days being infectious, if not, uh, if not weeks um, uh, after the fact. And so, um, so I think we haven't, you know, we haven't really done, in Massachusetts we have, we've, we've, we've used masks, we've distanced, and we've gotten cases to pretty low rates, but as long as cases continue in other parts of the country, we're, we're kind of, we're just sitting here and trying to uh, keep treading water when we, when we would like to be eventually getting to shore. And, um, uh, but until we have cases dealt with everywhere, we're gonna keep treading. And um, I think one approach is frequent testing would potentially get us back on our feet um, along with masks and things like that. So I think Massachusetts, you know, if the federal government's not gonna be doing it, I think Massachusetts or California or some of these very high net worth states um, with a lot of innovation could be actually taking it upon ourselves to change the landscape of testing. We've done it a bit at the Broad, for example, but that's just one place. We should be building the manufacturing plants and really producing huge numbers of these tests um, and getting them out into the community. Um, you know, if the federal, federal government's not gonna do it, maybe at the state level we can, but it's not cheap either. So, um, although I, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a lot of money that has been doled out or that's still waiting to be doled out to states from the stimulus packages. And, and so maybe some of that could be used. Some states could get together and build it, for example. Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, um, just uh, again, briefly, I know you, we talk, you talked about us being in the fall right now in the country and having like lots of those little sparks everywhere. Um, in the Northeast, uh, you know, we, we have done pretty well getting cases to low rates, but uh, it seems like the trend is starting to move again in that direction uh, where cases are starting to rise a bit and we're seeing um, just rates just, just, just seem to go in the wrong direction. Is it accurate to say we're also in a COVID autumn, so to speak? I think so, yeah. Um, this, isn't, uh, this isn't surprising to me that we're seeing cases increase. Um, you know, we have, we've, we think that a lot of our actions are what have really improved our ability to control this virus, but a lot of it, I don't think we've paid enough attention to the fact that this virus naturally, or at least viruses like this naturally go down during the summer and come back up. So is it our actions that have really led to the massive reductions in the Northeast or is it the weather? or a little bit of both. I think it's both. Um, but what it also implies is that, um, that maybe the actions that we've taken thus far to control it are not sufficient uh, to control it through the winter. Um, my guess is that that will be the case. And, uh, and, and I haven't really seen uh, in any states the type of urgency that we really should be putting towards this um, to get ready for the winter. We've, I think most people, you'd rather look at the glasses half full and so it's easy to sit back on our laurels and say, hey, look, we figured out how to control this virus. Well, maybe, but likely not. Um, and, uh, and so I think that it's definitely fair to say we're in a COVID autumn and we're probably going to see a massive uptick in cases um, as the winter sets in. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. It's uh, really helpful. Sure. And I heard somebody tweeting something about winter coming at some point too. Yeah, I think the, it's funny, the Boston Globe actually wrote a whole article just based on my tweets. <laughs> they didn't interview me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have any other final thoughts or comments before we go? No, and my laptop's at 1% battery, so. <laughs> okay, I think we're done then. Thank you very much, Dr. Minna, and thank you for everyone who's been on today's call. Uh, have a great weekend, and we'll be in touch about next week. This concludes the October 9th press conference.